Well, today I'm going to begin a series on the, the Beatitudes of Jesus. Beatitudes are blessings. They're, they're sayings that are blessings. And they're found in the beginning of this sermon. Uh, some scholars say this sermon is a collection of Jesus' teachings that um, culminated over three years and compiled together. Others say it was one sermon happened on the mount. Um, regardless of which of those may be true, these sayings are extremely powerful. They're controversial. Um, and if we took them serious, they would likely change our lives. Today we begin uh, with Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And for the next few weeks through uh, Palm, up until Palm Sunday, I'm going to be preaching on each one of these eight Beatitudes using a word a week um, as our series. The word for today is kingdom. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Kingdom's a big word for Jesus. It's such a big word that at his crucifixion, uh, Rome would put a plaque over your head when you were crucified to put your uh, crime. So people would walk by and say, well, there's the crime. If you do this crime, this will happen to you. And it was meant to intimidate. And so the sign over Jesus's head read, and you, you're familiar, it reads, King of the Jews, King. There it is, Kingdom. Nobody claims to be a king in the Roman Empire. But this word is huge for him. This Sermon on the Mount begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And later he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom. And later he says, But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He said to his disciples, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He also taught this, the kingdom of God is like as it is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day and the seed would sprout and grow and he does not know how. 
When a scribe agreed with Jesus on his summary of the law, Jesus said to that scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. Kingdom is a big deal for Jesus. To Nicodemus, he said, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. And then he taught us to pray. And you know, this is there. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth right here as it is in heaven. So we're to pray for this kingdom, this concept that Jesus carried with him in his teachings. This is a primary teaching of Jesus, the kingdom. So much so crucified over his head, king of the Jews. And we're to pray for God's will to be done here and now in this moment on earth, which I interpret in the dirt. That the, that the will of God be done right here in the city of Richmond, Virginia. That it be done right here in the United States of America. That the will of God be done on this planet that is a gift of God to all of us. Jesus said, pray for that kingdom, pray for it to come, wait for it to come. And sometimes you sleep at night and it comes even without your knowing how. Donald Craybill wrote a book back in 1978 entitled The Upside Down Kingdom of God. In essence, Jesus flips everything in his kingdom that is different from any other kingdom we know. And he writes, the kingdom appears whenever women and men submit their lives to the will of God. That's where the kingdom starts showing up. But kingdom's not a word we use. It's not, I bet you've not used the word kingdom all week. Um, I, I don't know why you would have. Unless you had a, a fight in your marriage and you said to your husband, you just think you live in a kingdom, don't you? I mean, you know, it, it doesn't fit us, kingdom. We might better understand the word if we translated it to culture. The culture of Jesus. The culture of God. Companies have a culture. Bank of America has a particular culture that's different from the culture of Wells Fargo. Altria has a culture. Walmart has a culture. Apple has a culture. Google definitely has a culture. General Motors has a culture. Martin's Grocery Store has a culture. It's not like anything else. And what was the name of the company before Martin's that was here? <laughs> See, you know, they had a culture. And I bet many of you miss that grocery store because of their particular culture. When Jesus begins to teach, he's talking about the culture of God. He's not talking about the culture of Rome. He's not talking about the culture of the Jews. He's not talking about uh, religious culture, political culture. He's talking about the culture, the kingdom of God. And it's upside down. 
It's different from what you think. For example, we say meekness might be a sign of weakness. Those who are meek are like doormats. They don't really get far in life. They settle for less. If you want to get anywhere, you have to be strong. You have to be tough. Jesus flips that upside down and says the meek will inherit the earth. They win. How can this be? Pilate should win. Rome should win. They have the power, and yet right in the middle of the Roman Empire, Jesus says, meekness wins. We say mercy can be indulgent, especially if there's a crime and somebody should pay, there should be justice, and so we execute our justice. And Jesus doesn't discount justice, But he holds justice and mercy in tension with each other. He won't let them go. And he says those who are merciful receive mercy. Mercy is reciprocal. And a culture and society that becomes merciful plants mercy and mercy grows. And the fruit of mercy is a part of that culture. It's upside down. We condemn murder, as we should. And Jesus says, well, so do I. It's in the Old Testament. But let me say, I've got a problem with your anger. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, how can you compare anger to murder? Because your anger kills relationships. Oh, you didn't pull the trigger. You didn't actually shoot somebody. You just absolutely cut them off. Who is that? Your sister? Your mother, your father, your brother, your husband, your wife, maybe one of your own children. Anger is like acid. And in the culture of Jesus, in Jesus' culture, we tend to go over and say, here's the bad things. And they're all lined up. And murder is definitely bad. And in the culture of Jesus, Jesus said, if I were you, I'd watch out for your anger. Because it can eat you from the inside out. How are you dealing with it? We say in the Old Testament, the law of lex, lex talionis, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is actually a good law. I mean, I know it sounds strange, but if somebody took your eye, then you could only take their eye in return. You couldn't take their head off. So the law actually had a limit to it. If you lost a hand, then you take a hand. If you lost a tooth, you take a tooth. It sounds morbid. But it was was a way to, to guard society from becoming too brutal. When this law was quoted to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Yeah, you say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But in my culture, I would ask you to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Well, that's unfair. That seems I'm being taken advantage of. What lesson is learned there? You take my eye and I, you slap my cheek and, and I turn and give you the other one. And we saw the power of that upside down culture in the civil rights movement of the 60s. And it changed things. Not enough, but it changed things. It's the culture of Jesus. Wasn't Martin Luther King's culture. It was the culture of Christ. Was Martin Luther King a sinful man? Probably. Yeah, I'd say. I don't know. I guess if he was human, he was. 
That culture didn't belong to him. It belonged to Christ. It was bigger than him. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's the culture and the kingdom of God. We say, love our, your neighbor. It's in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. For Jews, Muslims, and Christians, that's in the Bible. And Jesus said, I'm going to take you a step further. In my culture, love your enemy. Don't ask me to do that. Don't ask me to love somebody that's on the other side of the aisle. Don't ask me to love somebody like a, doesn't that stop somewhere? I mean, you would not ask me to love a terrorist. Because we stand for this, and this is good, and they stand for that, and that is bad. And I can't stop standing for good just to love somebody who's on the wrong side of the fence. I don't know how to do that. That's right, you don't. The culture of Jesus is radical. Oh, we want to tame it. We want to make it our version of Christianity which is a lot easier and a lot more powder puff. But when you read him, it's the kind of stuff people get crucified for. It'll get you killed. Ask John the Baptist. Ask any of the 12 disciples. Ask Christ himself. And yet we've tamed it. We've softened it. We like to think we control it and that our ideas are the right ideas. And if you read Jesus, you'll find out how wrong your ideas really are. He's incredibly upside down. The question that I think we need to keep asking, and I mean we, the church, all churches, everywhere, is... What culture are we living in? To what kingdom do we really belong? I mean, really, blow the smoke away. Because let's say this, church membership does not equate to living in the culture of Jesus. Okay? Church membership does not equate to living in the culture of Jesus. That's like me going down to the garage and sitting in the garage... And just sitting there while people work on cars. And if I sit there long enough, I can call myself a mechanic. So if I go to the church and sit in the church, then perhaps I can call myself a Christian. There is cultural Christianity, you know. I was born a Presbyterian, baptized, confirmed, um, go to church occasionally. Um, give a little bit of my money to help support the church. There are cultural Jews. There are cultural Muslims. People who are born into a faith who don't practice it much or at all. And we have our cultural Christians. And maybe all of us at some extent have been that or even are that. But if you sign up for the culture of Jesus, you move out of being a cultural Christian and you move into something else. And it's different. It'll change you. He will change you. He will flip your ethics. He will tame your tongue. He will change your heart. He will absolutely bring you into another way of living, even while you're living in the American culture.
They're not the same. The kingdom of Jesus will far outlive the American culture. It outlived Rome. It's outlived every empire that's ever stood up and fallen. And it'll outlive this one. It is the eternal kingdom or culture of God. And the question that the church has to keep asking, especially right now, is to which kingdom do I really belong? I mean really belong. Where is my citizenship? From where do my ethics come? How am I thinking? To who do I pay allegiance to? Who is the king of my life? The one thing we cannot afford to be in any generation, but I'm in this time, so we'll say now. The thing we cannot afford to be now is irrelevant. I did a seminar uh, in Chicago last year when I was doing the consulting uh, work, and um, you know, I just had a workshop, but this guy was a keynote speaker, and um, he really had something to say. And one of the things he said was, the youth of our society and the younger people of our society don't seem to have a problem with Jesus. In fact, they admire him. When they learn about Jesus and what he stood for and who he was, they admire that and wished that we were all like him. What they have a problem with is the church. And there's a gap between who and what the church is and who and what Jesus is, and they have a hard time negotiating that gap because we don't always look like him. And so there's no interest in leaving a beautiful day like today and coming into church and signing a pledge card and listening to a preacher and belonging to a religious club. Those days are over. Nobody wants to belong to a religious club. But Augustine would argue in the heart of every person is a desire to belong to the culture of God. We long for it. We're hungry for it. We don't always call it that. We don't know what to name it, but that's it. We were made to be in harmony with God. And when we're in disharmony, we feel it, we know it, and something's missing. Now, the problem is we fill up that hole with substitutes. And we think those substitutes will fill the hunger that we have for God. And none of them, none of them, if they, if they could do it, they would have already done it. And they don't do it. And we remain hungry for the one who made us, for this culture of Christ. Many churches are asking the wrong questions. Again, when I traveled around the country, churches are asking, and you go in as a guru and they think you know everything. And so they'll say, how do we grow our church? How do we get more members? How do we get more attendance? How do we get more money? And I would say in those seminars, you're asking all the wrong questions. Those are organizational survival questions. How can we survive as an organization? How can we build up the church? How can we get the world to come in from the world to come to church and build the church up? The more profound question, if you were following and tracking the culture of Jesus, would be, why are you here? 
For what purpose are we a church? Whom are we following? What are our ethics and our morals and our standards? Who is Lord of our life? Who is the master of this church? Who's the boss? And yeah, we're looking for a new senior pastor and we want him or her to be just one ounce off of Jesus. That's who we're looking for. We're barking up the wrong tree. It's not the pastor. It's the people. And maybe instead of saying who is the preacher and who is the pastor and who are we going to get, the question might be who are we going to be? Who are we going to be? With or without a preacher, who are you? And to whose culture do you belong? If you were in the culture of Jesus, you'd probably look a little different than you do now. If you were fully in it. But we all live with the gap. Every church lives with the gap. Here's Jesus, here's us. Read the disciples following Jesus. They couldn't keep up with him. He knew what was going on and they were cutting people's ears off. And he would say, Peter, I hate it when you do that. And he put the ear back on. They never got it. They sat at the table and said, when you come into your kingdom. See, they thought it was the Israel kingdom. They thought it was a political kingdom. And they said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, I want to be on your right and on your left. James and John. And Jesus said, you don't, you don't get it yet. That's not the kind of kingdom I've got. I have a culture that belongs to God. And if you want to live in it, you have to choose that culture constantly. And we call that discipleship. The old word disciple means student, which means I'm a student of Jesus. If that's true and I'm a student of Jesus, what am I learning from him? Where is my classroom? Am I following him? What we hear in our culture right now is a whole lot of opinions. Blankets of blankets of opinions. But if you pulled back from that and said, where is the culture of Jesus in our current situation? Who is he and what is he saying and how does he flip these ethics upside down? Because my opinion doesn't matter. His does. And if I don't know him, then I'm left to my own opinions. And they're about as useless, you know, as cracked ice. They're not going to last long. And what you think really doesn't matter. What does he think? Where is the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life and in the life of this congregation? Those are the powerful questions. That we have to keep asking ourselves and measuring ourselves against that standard. I go to conferences sometimes and they'll say, how big is your church? And I've gotten older and more crusty. So I just answer, in what regard? How big is your church? You mean square footage? Do you mean obesity? Do you mean membership? Oh, they say they have 1,300 members, but you can't find half of them. Do you mean attendance? Do you mean budget? What are you asking me? How big is your church? 
You think that might be the wrong question. How faithful is your church? How connected to Jesus Christ is your church? How much does your church live in the culture of Christ? There's a question. There's the question. Gray Bill writes, Paradox, irony, and surprise permeate the teachings of Jesus. Boy, that's the truth. They flip our expectations upside down. The least are the greatest. The immoral receive forgiveness and blessing. Adults become like children. The religious miss the heavenly banquet. Things aren't the way we expect them to be. Wow, wouldn't that be a relief? If things would turn and not be the way we all expect them to be. That is the culture of our Lord. You can't read this stuff and hang with this series without asking yourself the question, to which culture, to which kingdom do I really, really belong? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.